This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Welcome to the Rapcast. I'm your host, Zarar. Uh, Sam Folk is hosting the Rappers Weekly and the Rappers Weekly Extra podcast, which leaves me a little bit homeless. So uh, I've yet to come up with a proper name for this podcast. So we'll just go with a default show name, which is the Rapcast, the oldest Toronto Raptors podcast there is on the internet and joining me is one of the oldest guests we've had not in terms of age but in terms of how when the last time they were on or how, how the earliest they were on is Tim Chisholm hey man hey how you doing uh so I, I'm doing okay I'm trying to decide if I'm still basking in the glow of the championship or whether that glow has been dimmed by the Kawhi uh, incident or the Kawhi experience or, or the way the Kawhi experience ended, I should say. So we'll we'll try not to focus too much on what's happened because you know it's always good to look forward. But it it would be it would be impossible for us not to talk about uh, the free agency uh, situation that happened with Kawhi. So just your initial reaction when you first heard uh, that Kawhi Leonard is uh, signing with the Clippers. I think it happened on July sixth or something like that. So pretty late into free agency your immediate reaction and how you've sort of come to terms with it over the last couple of days. You know, it's funny. It actually reminded me a lot of what it was like when the Raptors first got him, because there was the immediate news that he's signing with the Clippers, which is a little bit of a gut punch. And then immediately afterwards, you find out that they're getting Paul George and they've got this whole massive trade that they've set up. And it was sort of like when the Raptors wound up trading DeRozan then you find out they're also getting Danny Green. Then you also found out they didn't give up Siakam and OG. There was just that kind of staggered realization. But uh, you sort of really understood it pretty quickly once you started to hear what Kawhi was trying to do. I think, yes, going back to L.A. was obviously a priority. People knew that before he even came to Toronto. But I think that that idea of him really going out and trying to get a second star was even more interesting in a way because I think it says that as much as anything, this was a guy who was only going to sign a long-term deal, and he was only going to do it if he knew there was a guy next to him that was basically as good as or on a par with him. And that was something the Raptors weren't going to be able to give, um, in addition to the Raptors not being able to give themselves the home of L.A. So it was it was kind of a, a, a ending exactly where we thought we were going to end. It just the path getting there was a lot more interesting. So if if winning a title is the ultimate goal for a player, and that's what you strive for, you know, every season, if, for me it looked like coming back to the Raptors, and if the Raptors could add a couple of free agents here and there, like they did with Rondé Hollis and so on, would offer a better chance of going back to the finals, especially with the with the Eastern talent a little bit more spread out now with Jimmy Butler in Miami. That that would be a more realistic or, or more, a higher probability path back to the finals than going into a dogfight with LeBron and Golden State and Houston and all that in the West. Uh, it turns out he chose that. Did he choose the best path to come back to the finals or did he take a, 
like a, like a longer view approach to this? I think it took a bit of a longer view. I think that if you're a guy who's committed to signing a four or five year deal, you're looking at the four or five year lifespan of that deal. And I think even though the Raptors have a ton of cap space potentially available to them next year, I don't know that as a player, you're entirely confident that that means anything. And you look at what you can get if you can actually get, I mean, he went after Durant, he went after Kyrie Irving, ended up with Paul George, but you kind of want to know what you're going to get for the length of your prime, which is more or less what Kawhi Leonard has signed up for. So I think that as much as anything, that's, that, that was sort of the deciding factor of it. I think it's, you're looking at the lifetime of the deal. You're looking at the lifetime of the contract. And as much as players love to say that they value winning more than anything, getting to the championship more than anything, I don't think it's ever that that simple. You know, I mean, if that were always true, then every player would gang up onto one super team and they would just destroy and win a championship. There's always the other factors at play. And I think this was more a case of, Given the other factors that were important to him, playing with another star, playing in L.A., uh, this was the version of that that he then feels has the best chance of getting back to the finals once and maybe multiple times over the course of his four-year deal. I hope he doesn't, though. Do you? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it's. <laughs> I have I hold no ill will towards him. It, it would definitely feel only because it would feel like it would take a bit of the shine off of the Toronto title. Because I think what you'd like to be able to see is that there was a bit more to it than just Kawhi, which I think there was. I, I don't think that this was a, a title that was won exclusively by Kawhi Leonard. And if he was able to go down to L.A. and win another one, you do just sort of feel like historically it'll look like the Raptors just got one from Kawhi. And I don't think that's the way that this title should be remembered. And you're bang on. Oh, by the way, you missed you missed Jimmy Butler in there. So he he tried to recruit Kevin Durant, right. Jimmy Butler, Kyrie Irving, and ended up with his fourth choice partner in L.A. And 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 one thing that we should also I I feel comment on is that the Clippers are gutted in terms of picks now. So not only did he he, he so he went back to the place that he you know he calls home, but at the same time he almost held the Clippers hostage to make that deal. And in doing that, he he, 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 like he could have signed for the Clippers and, and the Clippers wouldn't necessarily have to make that big of a deal to get Paul George. If he had signed without that precondition, maybe that franchise would have been a better off position than they are by basically sacrificing everything in the future. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something that I think caught a lot of people off guard because the sales job of the Clippers was supposed to be that they've got a pretty decent young uh, roster that they can play around or put around someone like Kawhi Leonard. And, you know, it's not that they completely nuked it, but getting rid of Shea Gildress-Alexander, getting rid of a bunch of draft picks, it limits them in the same way that getting Anthony Davis limits the Lakers in the same way that you sort of have to go when you're going after these, uh, these big stars, uh, except for Toronto, actually, who actually looks – very, very good at the way in which they acquired their superstar in terms of what it did to their future flexibility. But I think that players want to play with players. Players, for the most part, don't want to be GMs. Players don't want to be playing the game that fans are playing where they're kind of looking a couple years out, that they want this sort of ideal scenario where they can look at a young player and project out. Like, Guys like Kawhi don't care about projecting out young players. They want to find guys that they can play with today and that they believe will get them as far as it can get them. And so 
even though I think from a, you know, pundit's hat perspective, you look at it and you say, well, you know, that's a lot to give up. And you're putting yourself in a very specific position when it comes to being able to improve down the road. As a player, he had an objective in mind. He went for it. I just don't think that guys like him are thinking in the same way that uh, you or I might when it comes to actually assembling their team. Mm -hmm. It's it's definitely a a short-term view. Um, so, so I think that's enough about Kawhi. You know, best of luck to him, or, or almost best of luck to him. I'm, I'm rooting for the Warriors in the West now because I want to see the redemption story uh, with uh, D'Angelo Russell. You know, being be, be the being the thing that's you know gets them back to the finals. So, uh, right now they're my team um, in, in the West at least. Now for the Raptors, this puts them in a in an interesting position because they have they're not bad by any means. At the same time, they're not going to be Eastern Conference favorites at this point. I think the power rankings came out. Not that they mean anything, but just to give you an idea of what how how, how people are viewing the Raptors at this point. They, they were ranked 12th in the post-free agency power rankings. Again, the rankings don't mean much, but just to give you an idea on, on where people see them. They're definitely a good team. They could run back the exact same roster as last year, minus Kawhi and a couple of guys they added. And in, in my view, they would maybe finish third best case scenario uh, behind Boston and uh, sorry behind uh, Milwaukee and maybe Philly and you can throw in Boston there as well is that if if you're Masai Ujiri and you look at the options of of you know maybe trading away guys like Kyle Lowry at this point and going into a couple of years of just not necessarily competing for the title but maybe waiting for Siakam to develop maybe go for the uh Giannis sweepstakes in a couple of years. That's one option. The other option is just run back the same team and see how far you get and whatever the permutations there may be. What do you think? What do you think fans would like to see? If that's a fair question. And what do you think is a good option for Masai Ujiri to undertake? Or just just comment on that a little. Well, the fans one is interesting because you know going back to what we were talking about and how long ago we started doing these podcasts. Fans mean something different now than it did back then. I mean, back then, you had a very uh, hardcore type of fan base that understood what it means to tear down, rebuild, or take a step back with the eye of taking two steps forward in the future. Now you've got a whole other set of fans, and they're new to this whole thing. They're used to a Raptors team, even if it's not just from this year, but in the last couple of years, they're used to a Raptors team that finishes near the top of the East, that is a legit playoff threat. And so I think the kinds of fans that that we're thinking of are the more hardcore fans that understand a bit more of the nuances of team building. And I would think that they almost always want to tear everything down as soon as you don't have a shot at a title. (laughs) Uh, It's like this pathological sort of need that I've never really subscribed to. And I don't think Ujiri does either. I think that... You look at the reason why the Raptors were even in a position to do what they did last year. It's partly because they never bottomed out. It's the same reason uh, why teams like Houston and Indiana, uh, these sorts of organizations and San Antonio, that more or less say there's more value in staying good and building consistency, building in that kind of equity around the league so that when the time comes and you're in a position to make a move like the Raptors did to get Kawhi Leonard, which is obviously a once in a lifetime kind of move, but it's also sort of illustrative of what a team like the the Nets did, you know, and 
they wound up just trying to go out there, get players, build up some sort of a winning program. And so it wasn't going to be a joke when they could go out there and get guys like Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. It's, I think there's a lot more to be said for maintaining a certain amount of quality. And I think especially because, in a way, Siakam and what, almost whatever you keep around, but Siakam already makes you too good in the East to really, really bottom out. Mm-hmm. And so what you're really looking at now is, would you rather finish in that, like, maybe 10th in the East? Um, or would you rather kind of go to uh, what you were saying, which is in that three, four, five spot, stay sort of winning, be opportunistic but moves that come around. And even though you're not dominant, you're at least in a position to stay good enough that you're relevant mm-hmm. and not just relevant to fans but relevant to other players mm-hmm. and relevant to other teams so that if you're now saying going out and maybe not I, i'm going to throw something out there that i don't think would ever happen but you're in a position now maybe to go after a guy like bradley beal then it's not stupid to go after him because you're good enough to maybe warrant a move like that whereas sometimes when you really tear down you're now making yourself two three four years out from having a move like that be relevant to you and like we know, those moves are not just always going to be there. So I'm kind of of the mind, keep yourself primed for when those moves come about, mm-hmm. even if it means that you feel like you're sort of floating in this sort of good mediocrity, uh, because things can turn on a dime. And I think what you're seeing in the NBA now is things turn on a dime way more often than they did five or 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I assume that Ujiri, based off of his track record, uh, will go. But I think... It really could depend on if the, if, the, if this season goes sort of sideways. Um, I don't think he would hesitate to start pulling the trigger and shedding salary. Yeah. And, uh, well, well, even before the season goes sideways, or even before the season starts, I should say, uh, you know, Bruce Arthur had a, you know, in, in his column from a couple of days ago, which had some pretty good insights in it, which spoke about, you know, even if the Raptors had made the Paul George trade, uh, there was no guarantee that uh, Kawhi would come, which was a very surprising take for me. I, I could not wrap my head around that one um in that article he also mentioned that you know kyle lowry is quote-unquote likely to be traded um you know he, he didn't specify a timeline but but that take came up and and, and i in my column today i i you know i, I kind of pondered on that quote from uh, bruce's column and said okay does that really make sense and i kind of tried to justify why it might make sense to to trade Kyle Lowry as the as as Arthur's column had suggested, and I absolutely got lambasted for it in the comment section. It is is it, it is a riot in there. Uh, your view on Kyle Lowry, like if you if if you mention something like what you just said, where you have to kind of stay relevant for that big move to be available, um, and given Kyle Lowry only has one year left on his deal. Do you give him the Dirk-like treatment of, okay, let's have you run out the last year of your contract? Or do you say, oh, my God, I did not expect a 33-year-old Kyle Lowry making $33 million a year to be at the peak of his value in his entire career? And do I try to maximize this asset on the trade market? Of those two, because you did mention, even like even just with Siakam and just the guys we have, we're like fairly competitive. Do you look at Kyle Lowry as an asset or do you look at him as as somebody you kind of have to play out the last year of his contract, kind of like the Mavericks did with Dirk? Or, or is there a third option that, that, that I'm not seeing here? You know, it's funny. When I was reading your column this morning, I was actually, 
in that sort of mind space where I'm like, I, I don't know if I really agree with this idea that they have to go after trading Lowry until you did make the point that you're basically at peak value right now, coming off the title, um, coming off that sort of first notable run through the playoffs where there's no black marks on anything that he did. Um, the attention that he got as a veteran leader, all of that. I think even the kind of play that he had throughout the season in terms of making guys like when he was still here, Valanchunas and uh, Serge Ibaka and the things he was doing for their game to sort of spoon feed them. You really, you're right. He is sort of at the peak of his value. And I think there is a lot of sense to be made in, in unloading him if the right trade comes along. But I think when it comes to staying relevant in a potentially going to acquire the next guy move, you really are talking about Lowry. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ibaka is good. He's very good, but he's not a transcendent player. He's not making anybody else better. Ibaka's game is very much dependent on other people making him better. Gasol is just, you know, it's a ticking clock at that point. I love Marc Gasol. I think what he did in the playoffs uh, remains underrated, but it's really... The other guy on the team right now is Kyle Lowry. And so I think it's either a case of you're able to leverage someone like Ibaka and Gasol into some sort of trade that maybe replaces that kind of value for Lowry, and then you can move Lowry on, or you're moving Lowry on for like a Lowry almost equivalent, which I don't know that that would make sense for either team. It's... I just think that that's the one where you really almost do take a step back if Lowry's the one you let go of. Because I don't think Fred Van Vliet's the guy that's going to step in um, and really take over all of the things that Lowry does. So in a kind of domino effect, I could see it happening. But I would think of the three, he would be the one the team would least like to trade. Um, and unless he's now on the phone with Ujiri saying, OK, we've had fun, like Kawhi's gone, like I want out. I think that he's probably the one they're least inclined to try to trade. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I see that. Uh, so, so you mentioned Siakam there and and how good he's become. Were you, what was your reaction to hearing that, uh, for, I think it was Adrian Wodge, uh, Wodge's uh, report, which said that Toronto just, with or without Siakam, did not have the assets to satisfy OKC. That was surprising to me because I felt that Siakam's stock was high enough where if you offered him to OKC, you know, for for Paul George, who just handed in a trade request, that that kind of talent would be sufficient to to kind of push Presti over the edge. I personally was surprised that we didn't have the assets because if because in, in my mind, Siakam throw in Norm in there, I don't know, pick somebody else ship that and that's that should get you Paul George what was your reaction to that were you, were you surprised or were you were like okay that makes sense the Raptors don't really have the assets for Paul George I was a little surprised but I also it reminded me a lot of actually when the Raptors had tried to trade for Serge Ibaka from the Thunder a few years ago and the package they got back from Orlando was not I mean in subsequent years we found out how good Victor Oladipo was but at the time it seemed like it was less than what they were asking from Toronto. Mm -hmm. But it's that weird thing where I think people start to assess value differently depending on the team that you're talking to. I think with the Raptors, um, they didn't have that extra draft pick. So now you're looking at maybe having to 
um, take on a guy like OG to maybe make up for that and and Siakam. And I think another deal is that with Shea Gildress Alexander is so much farther away than his extent to his extension than Siakam is. So you can start to talk yourself into weird corners. But I think what it really came down to is that Toronto didn't have the assets. I don't think it's not they didn't have them empirically. I don't think they had them in a way that they were going to make anything available to get Paul George. I think that there was probably a cap if they were going to give up Siakam in terms of what else they would pass along. And considering that we've heard sort of since then that this wasn't even a trade that really got to the upper reaches of, uh, of the management for either team, that Toronto kind of knew at this point that Kawhi was gone. So it's debatable how serious the talks even were. But I think it had a lot to do with that. I think you're talking about like how much they were coveting those kinds of draft picks, especially the Miami pick that they got, versus the amount of money that you're going to have to invest and how quickly you're going to have to invest it. Because if you're OKC now, you're hitting the reset button on the clock a bit. And I don't know that you wanted having to put yourself uh, at a one-year window before you're going to have to come close to at least maxing out a Pascal Siakam, yeah. um, even if he was the kind of best possible returning player in that whole uh, in that whole conversation. OKC reminds me of um, you know the Raptors of old, where they are shedding talent, getting picks in return, but it it, it seems to have a reputation of nobody kind of wanting to play there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel sad for the franchise because. You know, they had that moment with Durant, you know, Westbrook and Harden, where they were really on the cusp of things, and it just all has come to uh, come to naught. But but let's get back to Siakam for a second. Uh, you know, when the trade reaction was being analyzed by multiple outlets out there, uh, you know, Siakam's name was was thrown out there as a as a okay. Now this is what the Raptors have, and without fail, at least on the NBA.com articles that that were posted by and several you know pundits commented on it. They essentially still seem to view him as a secondary option um, for the foreseeable future. They don't actually see him as a top-tier player. If you see him as a top-tier player, what do you think the timeline for that looks like? And and I know this is a difficult question and it's hard to project a guy, but in your view, is Siakam a number one option next season for us or next season in the league? Can he be a number one option? Let's just start with that. I think he can be, but I think he can be in the way that it's a, this is not a great comparison, but in the way that someone like DeRozan is a number one option, like it's, oh, that's, that's, that's bad, I, man. <laughs> that's bad. But I mean it in the way that it's not that, like, he's obviously more efficient than DeRozan. He scores from better places. Um, he can actually hit threes. I just mean it more in that sense that he's not necessarily, we don't know yet if he's a guy that in the playoffs, you can sort of just throw the ball to and he'll get you two points. I think that in the playoffs this year, the attention that Kawhi got obviously helped him. I think Kyle Lowry has been a huge asset for Siakam's game because I think he knows so well how to get in the ball in spots that maximizes talents. So what I think I'm mostly curious about with Siakam coming into this year is what does it mean for him to be number one option for this team? You know, how does Nurse devise schemes that counter the fact that a lot of teams now kind of get what he's going to try to do? Uh, How does the team 
look to get him looks from players maybe other than Lowry, other sort of actions that they were running last year. It's it's not that for me that it's a case that he can't. It's just that based off of, if, let's say he sort of plateaus at where he's at, which is a very good player. That's where I think you get into that DeRozan era, area, which for me mostly just means that you're talking about like a B plus, A minus, like number one scorer. Mm-hmm. That he's not going to be the one that completely carries you. You need to get him another guy. Or he needs to be working with a top flight point guard who can just make his scoring opportunities a little bit easier. Um, but he's also a guy that coming, considering what we all expected of him coming into this year, you know, there is a chance that he puts the work in the summer. He's seen a lot over the course of this last year, dedicates himself to taking that next step, and maybe he does it. It's just a case of, I, I'm always reluctant to be one of those people that says, well, he's only 25 years old. He could only get better. It's like, no, it's like, players don't just forever get better. It's, just, it's still a matter of we have to sort of see what happens with him uh, in the next year. I am a Siakam optimist. I just don't know what optimist looks like considering how much is going to change going into next year. Mm. I, I guess my biggest fear is, uh, is uh, and this is a, not, nothing to do with Siakam, is a repeat of the Chris Bosh era because mm-hmm. I did not enjoy that right that, like that was the, that that f- fifth sixth seed whatever we were in those years and it was an inevitability that we'd get crushed in the playoffs by somebody um I just don't want to see that and and, and, I, and I think that was a, a lot of that was not because of Chris Bosh but because of you know Brian Colangelo's decisions around Chris Bosh the the type of players that he surrounded Chris Bosh with uh, were not suited to whatever we were trying to do. It was just it was poor management than an indictment on Chris Bosh. And and, and I and I'm confident that that won't happen again with the Raptor. I think Masai Ujiri has, you know, is astute enough to to make sure that you know he 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 blows it up if he needs to blow it up, and he augments whoever his main guy is with the right players that we don't. But it's just my underlying fear that oh my god, I I, I don't want to get into that again. That's a, the Chris Bosh comparison is actually amazing, and it's much better than my comparison because you're right. It's I think that that's that's an example of a player who can be a really good, healthy calorie player um, on a playoff team that is so irrelevant as a team that you can really trick yourself. And I think this would happen a lot in Colangelo's tenure. You can trick yourself into thinking you're a lot better than you are or that you're a lot closer to being good than you are. And that's where I think the challenge is with a guy like Siakam. And what I guess I sort of mean in terms of how you flesh out the roster around him, because Colangelo was so eager to just star hunt that mm-hmm. it really didn't matter what kind of player he was putting alongside uh, Chris Bosch. I mean, his pursuit of Jermaine O'Neal typified that. And then also having Andrea Bargnani. So we're just going to put all of our supposed best talent in the same position and just let the chips fall where they may. I mean, it's it's something that I, I agree with you. I don't think Ujiri would do. I don't think that uh, the league works exactly the same way that it did um, like sort of 15 years ago when, when, when Chris Bosch was, was coming up. I, I, I like that comparison, though, because I do think that that is a perfect worst-case scenario for how they could handle the Pascal Siakam situation, which is that he becomes really good. If he plays like he did last year, he's probably an all-star. But that it just doesn't matter. And that's why I get very, very curious about what Ujiri thinks this next 12 months is. If it's a, because I, I never like seasons that just become audition seasons. I never mm-hmm. like this idea of, well, 
we'll go into the year just with the idea of seeing what guys can do. Let's, you know, maybe you want to load Kyle yeah. Lowry just to see if Fred VanVleet can be a starting point guard, or just to see if Norm Powell can make it work as a starting shooting guard, or, or however you want to slice and dice that sort of stuff. I think you have to be a bit more decisive because in order for guys to develop, they need some sort of structure in their role, and which means that you can't just be a guessing game as to what they're going to give you. And so I would just hope that what they do with Siakam is a bit more intentional than the kinds of things they were doing with Chris Bosh, uh, which I, I mean, I, yeah, I'm enamored of that comparison because you're right. That's exactly the worst case scenario. Um, uh, so if you if you look at our um, depth chart right now and, and assuming, you know, it's, it's kind of premature to talk about depth charts because, you know, for the Raptors case, the free agent, let me, let me ask you this question instead. This Kawhi waiting till day six of free agency to make his decision. How much did those the, the, and Messiah Jiri is on record saying that you know he's going to pause and wait till Kawhi makes his decision before he does anything? We lost six days in during that decision. How much of an impact do you think that has had on our maneuverability in the market, and how how difficult it has become for Ujiri to actually acquire players? Or do you think? the chips would have fall, fallen the way they were, even if, even if, if, they, if we had time? No, I think it definitely had an impact. Uh, it's you, If you're Ujiri, you still do it 10 times out of 10 if you have the chance of bringing back Kawhi Leonard. But I think that what the Raptors lack right now is something that is just not available to them right now, which is scoring. You know, it, you can maybe slide OG into the starting lineup, but I think what you're getting out of him, your hope is you get something more approximating what Danny Green gave you than what Kawhi gave you. And so you have this sort of big rotation screwed up offensive hole um, from what you lost with Kawhi Leonard. And that's the thing that they might have at least tried to go after earlier on uh, in free agency if they'd had that opportunity. I don't know who they would have gone after. I think if you want to look at it as a glass half full situation, I think there's an, there was a chance that in losing Kawhi, you could have panic signed someone um, just as a way of really saying, you know what, the East has gotten worse. Let's go out there. Let's spend on someone. Let's keep ourselves in the top three in the East and really see what we can do with the rest of the roster and keeping it intact. The smarter hand, smarter way to handle it is probably more like this, which is, a bit more of a slow burn, sort of looking about a year or two out and, and not necessarily overcommitting to anything uh, one way or another. But uh, I don't think there's any way you can look at him waiting as uh, a positive for the Raptors because it just, for someone like Ujiri who just likes to have flexibility, it removed all of it. And so you sort of see in the moves they've made since uh, what it looks like when you're basically uh, you know, sitting with money to spend it and nothing to spend it on. I I think, I don't know if he's on the market, um, but if we're able to somehow, and man, don't ask me how, but able to get Bradley Beal, you know, from the Wizards who are, who are, who are right now slated to be just brutal next season. Um, and we're able to get him and give up, I don't know, OG or somebody and, and maybe a pick or so. I would look at that as a decent retool amidst the whole Kawhi saga. And I'm like, you know what? That might get us to the finals because now you have like a couple of stars. You got Siakam. It might work. So, but short of that, 
I just feel we're just below the bucks and um, some of the retooling that, that the other teams have done to make it to the finals. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what do you think of the Raptors' chances are as is today uh, going back to the finals? I think it's very remote. Uh, mm-hmm. it just based on where the roster is today, I mean, I think both Philly and Milwaukee took a step back, but I think Toronto took a much farther step yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think the Raptors and Boston, I think, suffered similar blows. Um, and if it was the four of them going into last season uh, as a kind of um, interchangeable one through four, I think you now have a very, cl- very clear one, two, um, and then maybe like three, four, five, if you want to include uh, include the Nets, depending on how much you like Kyrie Irving. But um, yeah, I just without without some other move, without other some other um, shoe to drop, I just don't see how the Raptors compete in in a seven game series with either of those teams. I mean, certainly Rondé Hollis Jefferson is a pretty decent pickup. Uh... But I mean, in the in the analysis by I think ESPN or NB or RotoWire or something, they they had mentioned that Rondé Hollis Jefferson is a likely starter at the three for the Raptors, and I was like, oh please God, no! <laughs> like, yeah. I like him, but no, please. No, I don't see that. I love when those things sort of come out, and it's just you got these. Guys, no, I mean that's never, not a chance that's going to happen. He'll get minutes. I mean, barring any other kind of move, I think that's the perfect kind of guy to play behind someone like Siakam. But uh, but no, I I don't think that. Uh, there's any doubt that going into the season, looking at like it is right now, that OG is going to be uh, given the opportunity to start at the three. I think he gets his sort of uh, reclamation season, um, uh, first dibs at least on a reclamation season before they look at anybody else. And Hollis Jefferson is going to be a – I mean, the Raptors have done this before. It's it's very similar to what they did uh, with Tyler Hansbrough in the past and Greg Monroe in the past. You kind of go after a guy um, – on sort of a very, and Biombo too. You go after a guy on a very short deal that you feel fills a need. Um, you don't put massive expectations on his shoulder, but he can expect to play, and you sort of see what happens. And I think that that's what you're going to get out of having him uh, on the roster this season. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and certainly, I, I think it's a bit premature to talk about depth charts and roster, but until we, we just until we know what Ujiri decides to do with the next 12 months. Uh, I think um, you know. I, I would love to see a Beal trade. I just don't see how you know. How I think Golden State is now inquiring about Beal as well. So there's a, there's a lot of interest in the guy. Obviously, um, do you have any interest whatsoever in another star which is on the block in Russell Westbrook? No. Okay. Just just just, it's, just okay. Explain. It, it's just the, it's just the contract. Yeah. To be honest, like I think that. You can talk yourself into the talent. I think you can talk yourself even into the personality. But being in the Russell Westbrook business means you're only in the Russell Westbrook business. And I just, <laughs> I just don't know if that's a business you want to be in. Yeah. All right. Let, let, let's switch gears uh, to, to something a little more meta, I guess. Uh, the, the media coverage around uh, around all this. Um, and the other day, I was uh, I was I was checking out Peter Vesey. You remember Peter Vesey? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was checking his Twitter timeline, and he and he and I listened to a podcast he was on, and uh, and uh, you know they, they were they were asking him all these questions about you know like like what was the end of him, and any any divulged that when he was at uh, TNT for those couple of years, uh, him and Charles just were not getting along, 
And one day he went to the TNT boss and goes, hey, man, listen, Charles here for the hot takes. I'm here to break stuff. Maybe we should be in different studios. And that was the end of his career. Uh, and he was also asked about, you know, all the insiders out there that, that claim to be insiders, at least. And they asked him about Wodge and all that. And and it, it, it kind of made me think back to what an insider really was and is today. Uh Back in the day, I think I used to read the New York Post column "Hoop Du Jour" by Vessi and, and a couple other writers, and it was like a weekly thing, and you and you and you got a good, you know, good good insight on what's happening in the NBA, and you always learned something new, and it was stuff that was was controversial because stories were broken that teams did not necessarily want to be broken. Whereas today, I find that a lot of the a lot of the watch bombs are is information that would have come out naturally like 10 minutes later and we're just competing for who gets it out first when if you just wake up the next morning you'll have it available whereas previously a lot of the stories like you no know, Spreewell getting <laughs> choking Carlissimo <laughs> the whiz bringing guns into the locker room uh, and you know I can go on were things that the teams were kind of holding on to and when you broke that it it meant like you kind of broke some I don't know. It meant more than oh my god! I just learned about this trade five minutes earlier. What, what, how, do you how do you contrast the two eras? Has am I making too much of it, or, or are the two are the two are the two different or similar? I, help me make sense of it a little. I think there's still I think you still have those sort of behind the scenes peaks. I mean, I'm thinking of the J.R. Smith soup incident. Um, from a cup from two years ago, I think you still you have the, all the stuff that happened in Boston last year. I still think you get those sort of behind closed door stuff that uh, that you used to get. But I think what's interesting now is the delivery mechanism is different because back in the in the Peter Vesey days, it would be you would hear nothing and then you would have a fully reported uh, narrative about what it was. And that was your introduction to the whole thing. Whereas now, because of Twitter, I think what you sort of get are these um, snapshots. And by the time you start getting like pieces by Jackie McMullen, basically talking about the chaos in the Celtics locker room, you've been seeing like tweets and hits about it for like a month and a half. Mm -hmm. And so what I think you have now is news doesn't so much break as a lot of innuendo breaks and then some really good writer will be putting that together into a digestible narrative. Mm -hmm. And that digestible narrative has not changed. And I think you still have the sort of the great writers who are able to get that kind of access, cultivate sources and create something that's a bit more than just a one off. But it's diluted because you sort of see it coming. And I think what you really lost is the impact of having such a fully formed narrative uh, presented as the introduction to the whole issue. Uh, that's the kind of thing that I think we sort of miss. I think that even though there's more writing happening about the NBA now than there ever has been, I think there is less um, substance to a lot of what we consume because by the time stories are kind of have have some meat on the bone, we've already kind of, we've already moved on or. We're just more interested in the speculation stuff. You know, I think back to the uh, All-Star game when you had Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant whispering in the hallway. And people are almost more interested in speculating about that than really having a, a substantial talk about 
maybe the dysfunction of, of a specific team or the long tail ramifications of, of an event that had happened a month or two earlier. It's, I just think that our, our appetites have changed less so than, than the coverage around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. Uh, but what about Chris Broussard, though? Oh, God. You, you think <laughs> you think a Chris Broussard could have survived back 20 years ago? Uh, I, I think he'd just be like you and me, man, just on the sidelines watching the games. You know? I hundred, totally agree. I totally agree. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> all right. So, uh, so fine. Me- media segment uh, over. Uh, <laughs> the uh, what else is on my agenda here today? Uh, are you watching summer league at all, or is it is it is is it too much of a dip to go from championship to summer league? <laughs> That, it's it's a it's a dip. I, I get into summer league when the Raptors have like relevant draft picks. Yeah. Chris Boucher, Chris, Chris Boucher's in there. I enjoy Boucher, but you can watch Boucher in the D League. Like I, it's there's nobody that I feel like I need to I need to see to sort of understand where they're at. Like Boucher at this point, I understand what he can do against summer league slash D League competition. I, what I'm curious to see what happens now is if he gets a chance to play against. NBA teams in real minutes where he isn't that kind of sideshow that happens at the end of the game when we all start counting the seconds until he fires up a three-point shot. That's where I'm at with Chris Boucher. I think he's a real player. Uh, we just need to see him in NBA minutes to figure that out. Oh, I, I think he has moved well beyond the Bruno sideshow, cartoonish, caricature uh, type player. I think uh, like he has eclipsed he eclipsed Bruno, I think, a year ago, honestly. Oh, I t- agree. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think he's he's on the path to being a somewhat of a, you know, I don't know, 10th man off the bench maybe next year if, if, if things turn out well for him. Uh, I, I, so, so one report that I loved about Boucher, and, and we have um, Andrew Damlin who covers Boucher, and, and he, he keeps talking about this. And in the D-League, the guy just does not back down from anybody. Like he, his, his, his mental toughness and tenacity is such that he will not back down. And I can't stress how important that is when you come up to a league like this and, and you start playing against guys who just want to eat you alive. Oh, it's, it's the defining characteristic that I think Ujiri looks for in guys at this point. And the thing that I think that you saw even in the playoffs and finals this year is there's a multiplier effect that happens the more of those guys you have. You know, it's one thing to have, like, your single hustle guy or your single kind of chip-on-the-shoulder guy. But when none of the other guys on the roster emulate that that style, it's, you know, it's a very, very contained and almost containable asset. Whereas the more guys you have, you know, if you have a guy like Boucher, I mean, obviously someone like Siakam is a don't-quit Van Vliet, uh, you all of a sudden have more and more of these guys with that personality. And it just permeates other players that maybe wouldn't naturally have that kind of personality or it just becomes more of the personality of the team so even the guys that don't have it it's not as big of a deal because so much of the rest of the roster does that you're getting the benefits of it regardless and so it's one of the things that i like about and even going back to what we were talking about with the with that never existed with the calangelo years uh is that the ujiri team's have a personality and it actually becomes a lot easier to peg those sort of end of bench guys that your is going to go after because you're looking for exactly those qualities. They're long, they're athletic, they have a chip on their shoulder and they have a kind of manic intensity about the way they approach the game. And uh, it, it makes it easy to also then know if you're in the developmental pipeline for the Raptors, what you have to do 
to get up to the main team, which I think only benefits the entire pipeline uh, going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think Ujiri kind of mentioned this almost as an obligation and, uh, during one of his press conferences that, you know, this title or, or this run could not have happened without DeMar DeRozan and Dwayne Casey. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. This, this is, and you mentioned earlier about this being Toronto's title and not Kawhi's title. And I think we have to, not, not enough, I think, is being written about that aspect of things. Is that This is not something that we got Kawhi this year and boom, we got a title. It was those years of misery and learning and going through the playoff experience of paying your dues that eventually resulted in this title. And I think that that needs to be emphasized more. And and, and DeMar DeRozan and Dwayne Casey were big parts of that run. And yeah, those two guys didn't deliver as a title, but they were you know they, they were a, a big part of the tissue that eventually resulted in the title. I, I agree 150%. And I even think that had the other pieces around those two been different, it might have been those two that stuck around and someone like Lowry was the one that was actually mm-hmm. shipped out to make it all happen. You know, I right. think that fit with the group of them, including Valanchunas, wasn't exactly the right fit. And so they had to prioritize which ones based off of the other pieces that they had. They'd have to cast off all the rest of it. But if you don't go through the experience with those guys, I don't think you even know how to build the title team. You know, if if you don't have Casey being somewhat stubborn in the playoffs about the way that he approaches and even prepares during the regular season for the playoffs, I don't think you know to hire Nick Nurse under the under the uh, promise that I'm going to use the entire regular season as training camp for the playoffs. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that there is a mentality that comes from those failures and a learning that comes from those failures that doesn't mean that Casey and DeRozan are failures. It just means that in order to learn and execute from the learnings that they had, those were guys that had to be moved on. But their fingerprints are all over that title. And it's not just because they weren't there that that's true. I think there's so much about what they brought to the Raptors that got them to that point and got them to that precipice. Even going back to what we were talking about earlier, about what it means to just stay good and stay relevant, that by the time you go out and get a guy like Kawhi, you're in a position now to take the next step. You don't have to rebuild the whole program. And so those guys deserve a ton of credit. And I, and I credit you, Jiri, for giving them that credit. And uh, I credit the, the, the people that have pointed it out because no title is won really in a single year. It is always... A, uh, a series of, of, of moves, a series of growth steps, a, th- a series of experiences to get you there. Um, and I don't know that there are uh, two people more responsible for that for the Raptors than Casey and uh, DeMar DeRozan. Yeah, and also, you know, this being Toronto's title, I, I really equate this to the title that Detroit won in 2004. Uh, where it wasn't a super team, it wasn't just a you know bunch of Hall of Famers who decided to get together. It, 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 it wasn't like two or three, you know, big All Stars, perennial All Stars coming together. It, it really was organic development, and uh, Kawhi happened to be the the last piece that kind of completed the puzzle. So I, I I I know I as a Raptor fan take a lot of pride in winning the title in the way we did it, rather than just assembling a bunch of guys. Do do you share that sense of uh, accomplishment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny in a way because the only thing that dimmed the experience for me was just the fact that by the time you got to the, the final uh, final result is that 
there were so few of those guys that had been there for mm -hmm. the entire run, mm -hmm. you know, and you sort of are looking at it. It's like, it's great because I've been a fan of Marcus Gasol to see him get a title. And uh, it's great that, um, that obviously Lowry had been there through the whole thing, but it just sort of felt like there were all these other guys that you had built these attachments to over the course of the years who don't get to celebrate in it. And it, does just make it feel a little bit less, um, feel a little bit less the result of all of the years and all of the things that we were talking about. And even and it takes a more intellectual exercise to understand that that's not the case. That it all adds up to what it to what it equaled out to. But that was the one thing for me where I, I kind of felt at the end of it that like yeah, it's too bad that to get there it did mean shedding Casey and DeRozan and Valanciunas yeah. because. You know, it, it, it felt like because you don't get there without them. If you had to give one Raptor not named JV, DeRozan and Casey a ring as a, as a you know, honorary ring for winning this title. Who would you go in your in, in the history books or over the last few years and go, you know what? Give it to that guy. <laughs> oh, like any any era, any. You know, anybody who contributed to this title, but unfortunately wasn't part of the final team that made it. Um, I also took off like three of the main options for you. So the one that I might do it for, the one that comes to mind first is Corey Joseph. Uh -huh. um, because he sort of, there was that point in time uh, in Ujiri's like first couple of years with the team when we weren't quite sure if he would really have any more or less of an impact than Brian Colangelo had had in building a winning program. And I don't, for some reason, I, I you know, and it wasn't like he did anything marvelous to engineer getting Corey Joseph. They needed to renounce him to get LaMarcus Aldridge and the Raptors pounced. But it was just that ability to, uh, to extract value and, and then to have a guy come in and really, I think, elevate the team when he would play his minutes. Because I think we had so many guys come in through the Raptors program that were notable free agent signings that had almost no impact whatsoever on the play of anybody else on the court. They may have had not bad games, not bad stats, but but Joseph was actually a guy that impacted winning. And um, I think was one of those sort of slightly off the off the radar guys who then also appreciated the entire journey with the Raptors from how he was acquired to how he was traded. And that's something that I think is, is very valuable, you know, looking at trying to acquire new players is can the guys who have been with the program tell that entire story and, and will they tell that entire story? And he has, he did. Um, so if I had to pick one, that's probably who it would be. Yeah. Yeah. It's a difficult one. Um, who would you pick? Uh, man, I, I was thinking about this and I was like, don't laugh at this one, man. I was like, you know, James Johnson or Amir Johnson? I know Amir Johnson's going way back, but I thought, you know, I think when you look at Raptors history and, the, you know, earlier you said about staying good and not sucking enough and just, just playing hard and making sure like you're giving 100% and all that stuff and, and people who just who just kind of became faces of this franchise in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the last decade or so. Uh, Amir Johnson, he last played a game in 2015 for us. I thought him, for whatever reason, I've always been a big fan of James Johnson, even though Dwayne Casey absolutely hated his guts. Uh, I would have gone for him if I wasn't allowed to pick uh, JV uh, DeRozan or Casey. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 
And let, let's uh, finish this podcast off by by talking about a couple of former uh, players. JV signed an extension with uh, with the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't take much to make JV happy, man. I mean, I think, and uh, I think Memphis made him happy enough that he extended. And and Delon Wright went to uh, went to Dallas on a on a decent deal. Uh, th- thoughts? Where do you see? You know, he's not a Raptor, but let, let's give him his his, his due. JV, he will get a ring. What's the career path for JV at this point? I mean, I mean, I think he's proven to be a productive NBA player, even dominant at times, depending on who's guarding him. Um, wh- where do you see him going from here? Do you do you see him developing a a three point shot and and he becomes more of a Gasol type player, uh, or maybe a Demarcus Cousins type player? I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, Project him out for me at this point, because he is what? Like, he must be... Let me just check. He is... Uh, da, 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 how old is he? Uh, da, 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 da. Is he 28? He is... Uh, what is age on this? 26. He's 26. Oh, he's still young. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think I, I think Memphis would love it if he could develop a three-point shot. And I think that uh, it's something that was obviously really important to Dwayne Casey. And so he has worked on it, so it's not an outlandish thought that he might be able to to do it but beyond that i mean i don't think you're ever going to look at him as much of a facilitator um i i think that his his brain just works at normal nba speed you know (laughs) which is like which for me is like it's you know he's not he's not a slow thinker you know he's not one of these guys that's always a step behind the play he's definitely not one of those guys that's always a step ahead of the play he's like he thinks at like the speed that the game occurs in and so i think for a guy like JV, with with his you know mobility challenges, I, I think that that means that you're projecting a guy that's going to be like more or less what he has been, which is a very good low post player, a great rebounder, great screen setter. It's always going to give up a little bit on defense, and depending on how much you want to focus on him at the offensive end, um, he could be a really good scorer for you. But I don't think that, let's say, as Memphis. Uh, improves, I don't think you're going to look at their growth as him being one of the key elemental guys that makes them better. I think he's one of the guys that you have where he fills the position, he'll fill it fine, um, but if moving him meant that you could shore up some other position, I don't think that they really hesitate to, to move him along. And uh, whatever team then gets him, they're getting a valuable player in return. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I, I think we're, we're, we're almost out of time. So um, I want to ask you for a prediction for the East because they, I think the Raptors are still in flux. So I don't think it would mean much at this point. Uh, but on the West seems to be relatively shored up at this point. And maybe Golden State makes a move or so. Uh, you know, they'll add fringe pairs here and there. You got the Clippers, you got the Lakers, you have whatever Houston is. Uh, you obviously have the Warriors. Uh, Portland got a you know you know dose of reality in the Western Conference Finals. You also have the Nuggets a little bit. The Nuggets, by the way, is, is a team that I feel is looking to make a move to kind of put them at par with the rest of the competition in the West. But I, I, that's not an insider source. That's just me, me speculating. Given the landscape in the West right now. What do you see as the Western Conference final, and who do you see coming out? Um, If I had to pick now the Western Conference final, based on how the rosters look now, I think I'm the 
kind of like easy cheap money is on the Clippers because they have star power up top and still have some some depth. Um, I think that if you want a, a, a kookier pick, I might say that this could be one of those weird years where a team like Utah manages to kind of get the right breaks and matchups and ends up in the finals. Um, that's a bit of a long shot to me because you're not talking about a team that has that like top, top, top line talent like the Lakers and the Clippers do. I don't love the situation with the Lakers. I mean, they're obviously very good and I could see them getting to the uh, West finals, but I just, I, I worry about their depth. I worry about uh, their, their durability. So yeah, I'd probably have to say, uh, you know, my smart money would be on the Clippers. My, my daring money is on the jazz. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So I think that, that wraps it up. Uh, Tim, thanks for coming on, man. And, uh, uh, it has the championship high worn off, or do you expect that to stay with you for a little while? I think it'll keep coming back in waves. Yeah. That's, that's how I kind of have it go. Yeah. It's, you know, forget about it and then just remember and have a nice little yeah. nice little smile to myself. Yeah, that's exactly with me. I'll be sitting at work or something and like, I don't know, man, something happens. And I'll be like, oh, the Raptors are the NBA goddamn champions. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, all right, man. Thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you over the summer. My pleasure. Have a good one.